0: Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Hi everybody, welcome back to another Pain Talk podcast. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, talking about the legacy patient around tapering uh, of opiate analgesics. This is a a challenging thing, and I think what we were talking about last week was to remember that the patient did not prescribe the opioids to themselves. This is a habit and behavior that we've given the patient to manage their pain and suffering. Now, often these are patients that are on very, very high doses of opioid analgesic, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to find the lowest possible dose for that patient without having significant decompensation in their function. You also need to make sure that you have a strategy uh, to not abandon that patient during that taper, because it is possible that the patient could also be struggling with a substance use disorder. So you're not going to know that sometimes initially. So it is really important to continue to monitor the patient's use and really uh, keep reviewing their functional goals, making sure that they're staying mobile, that they're staying connected to the people and things that matter in their lives. It's helpful sometimes to have a discussion with patients looking at, so even coming back and saying how the opioid has actually hurt or helped their overall quality of life. Sometimes we have to bring in some consequences of their use of opiate analgesic, meaning that they are less mobile, more sort of disconnected. There may be some strife within the family. There may be a higher risk of falls. They're not getting to work. So then we want to have those discussions. We want to also look to see if there's any hypnotic sedative use or there's any concerns of alcohol use disorder. So this obviously increases the risk of sedation for these patients. But more importantly, if we look at what the goal of the opiate analgesic is, is to get the patient back to a life of purpose and connection, making sure that they're staying mobile. Our brain is always looking for movement, but it's always looking for calm. So there's been lots of studies looking at these very high dose of opioid analgesics. And we know that when you get to the uh, greater than 100 milligram morphine equivalent, that the overdose death rates increase considerably. So that 100 milligram morphine, 90 milligram morphine equivalent is quite significant. And if you add in a benzodiazepine, it is so striking to see the difference, especially in patients who are on those very high morphine equivalent daily doses. So the risk of respiratory depression and the risk of death goes up considerably in patients who are on more than 100 milligram morphine equivalent, as well as uh, benzodiazepines. There was also some really interesting work that was done out of St. Mike's, and this was Tara Gomes, who looked at the risk of uh, gabapentin in her paper that was submitted through the Medicine uh, 2017 out of PLOS, uh, she the title of the paper was Accidental Opioid Overdose Increases When Opioids Are Co-Prescribed with Gabapentin. So she found a 60% increase in odds of accidental opiate-related death when opioids are co-prescribed with moderate and high-dose Gabapentin compared to opiate use alone. There was two times the risk of accidental opiate overdose which nearly doubled with a co-prescription of very high dose gabapentin and opiates. Of all gabapentin users were co-prescribed an opioid in 2013, making the risk of overdose particularly concerning as these drugs are often used together. Sorry, forty-six percent of all gabapentin users were co-prescribed an opioid in 2013. Yeah, so and you often will see these very, very high doses of gabapentin with the opiate analgesic. And generally, I think a really important principle is that usually when you get to about an 1800 milligram dosing per day, uh, the pharmacokinetics are such that the patient is really not getting a whole bunch of benefit after that 1800, just a lot of sedation. So I tend not to prescribe higher than the 1800 milligram, obviously, and especially in those patients that are also using opiate analgesic. So how we communicate with patients when we're trying to, especially these legacy patients, it's really important to have that compassionate curiosity to be non-judgmental. But this is also where you can take back your power as a prescriber. It's really important to be open to a conversation. I love the ask, tell, ask conversation that we can have. So ask permission to discuss this with them, tell them your concerns and ask what they thought about what you were saying. So I always tell patients, I really care enough, you know, to have this conversation and that uh, we need to remember that we are a healthcare provider and that we need to discuss their drug use because we are concerned about their health and uh, why we need them to uh, work with us in terms of a taper. There's there's many common emotional responses that you might hear to tapering of opioids. And uh, sometimes the patient can challenge your ethical or professional obligation. Uh, they can lay a lot of guilt on you uh, they can also blame you that they were doing just fine prior to you uh, tapering them and now they can't do anything. There can also be a tremendous amount of fear. And because this is a tool that at some level has worked for them, it works for them in the moment, but it's not really helping them in the long term. And so we need to be able to be open and adjust uh, the medications and adjust our approach based on on how we're going to uh, support them through this. So, uh, so the taper we talked about how we would actually go about that. The other thing that could happen in step four is that the patient is not ready. Uh, so this is somebody, however, who has had a failed opiate trial. So these are patients that are on very high dosing. So this is where we could ask ourselves: Is this opiate-induced pain? Is this problematic substance use, or is this addiction? So that's often how I would frame it in my in my thinking. So opiate-induced hyperalgesia is really an interesting uh, paradoxical response to opioids. So we use opioids for pain, but they can actually cause pain. So the etiology of this is very controversial. And what we start to see is that patients can get this diffuse body pain or they get this hyperalgesia. And what's actually happening is a wind-up effect within the central nervous system. And the theory is it's around the NMDA receptor. These patients who develop opiate-induced hyperalgesia need an opiate rotation or a taper. And we see this quite commonly in the palliative care population. I often will reach out to my pharmacy colleagues as well to do these opiate rotations so that you have other people that are working with you, uh, especially looking at the math. The next thing you want to look at, so this would be somebody with opiate-induced pain, so the the treatment is really to do an opiate rotation or to uh, taper the patient. The second group is the patient who has problematic use, so you're not sure if they have addiction, but I always think of problematic use as the unstable angina of addiction medicine. So this is a patient that is demonstrating some concerning symptoms. You're not sure if they're actually living with addiction but you definitely see some problematic behavior. What would be some of the things that we think about with problematic use? And and the important thing to remember is that problematic use is not addiction. But there's certain behaviors that you might start to see is that the patient may request more or stronger opioids. They may be hoarding drugs when their symptoms improve because they're holding on to them just in case. They're going to ask you for very specific types of formulations around the opiate analgesic. They're getting opiate analgesics from more than one source. They've had unapproved dose escalations once or twice and unapproved use of analgesia to treat other symptoms. So they may have been using it to treat uh, their back pain, but now they've switched over to their chronic abdominal pain. How this is different from, from addiction is that addiction will be behavior such as selling their drugs, they're forging prescriptions, they're stealing prescriptions, they're altering a delivery route, they're buying their drugs from an illicit source. We have to be careful with that one too, especially if somebody's been actively tapered uh, too quickly. They may end up being relapsed to the street. So we have to be very careful how we approach the patient in that situation because it may not have been addiction at all. It was problematic, but it may not have been addiction. They are abusing other illicit drugs, so they may be actually testing positive for cocaine. Uh, and you've seen multiple dose escalations and multiple loss prescriptions. There can be that fine line. So the problem is is that if we think about problematic use of the opioid as unstable angina, then addiction is the acute MI. So this is when patients are really at risk of dying. So if we think about the diagnostic criteria, the DSM-5, there are some challenges with DSM-5. So what the American Society of Addiction Medicine and the American Pain Society came together and gave some criteria suggestive of misuse or addiction in patients with pain so really what they're using are the four c's so this is where the patient has impaired control over use they have compulsive use they have continued use despite harm due to to the use of the uh, opioid so these are the consequences and they have preoccupation with use and cravings, you can actually add a fifth C, which is chronic use. So some examples would be where the patient is losing or somebody steals their prescriptions, the call for early refills, declining function, patient starts to lose weight, they just start to look unwell, uh, and they have persistent over-sedation. And they may be making recurrent requests for opiate increase or complaints of increasing pain in absence of disease progression. So those are some of the flags that we need to think about. We also need to think about opiate addiction in the context that it is a life-threatening complication of opiate use. It's not a moral or ethical failing. It's no different than if a patient was on a blood thinner and they developed a life-threatening complication of bleeding. So I need to make sure that I'm monitoring the patient, that I'm managing the patient, that I'm trying to keep them safe. The other thing to recognize is that someone who does have an opiate addiction their pain will never get better or well-controlled if the opiate addiction exists, regardless of how many buckets of opiates I give my patient. So it's important that I will not get their pain control until I actually get their addiction under control. So these patients need opiate agonist therapy, and it needs to be done in an addiction framework. So I'm either looking at methadone or suboxone. And if they're not ready, then what I'm going to do is is have a conversation around Katie and but I'll share with you what the Medify protocol is through Dr. Mel Kahan. I think this is a really hard thing. Is when the patient is not ready. What are your next steps? What we tra- tend to do there, I tend to be very clear with the patient, and obviously you're coming at them with that compassion. You're trying to be non-judgmental around this, but we need them to understand that their opiate use is harming them, and that treatment will improve their pain, their mood, their functioning. So if they do not engage in treatment uh, and how you're monitoring them, tell them that you will perform an involuntary taper or rotate them to another long-acting opioid with daily dispensing. So what I tend to do is switch them to another long-acting opioid. I tend not to take the patient off the medication. I just want to try and stabilize their opiate use, but I do put it in a addiction framework. So it is a daily dispensing as well. I do not abruptly stop. It's not recommended. You don't want the patient relapsing to the community using drugs that may not be very safe. So I often will do daily dispensing at that point, but ideally I keep working with the patient trying to get them the help that they need. So what puts the patient at risk for addiction? There's multiple factors that can can be contributing, but what we do know is that age plays an important part. So 90% of all addiction will happen under the age of 35. 85% 85% under the age of 18. So, the younger the patient is, the higher the risk, which is kind of interesting because it's the opposite for the anticoagulations, meaning that the older the patient, the higher the risk. So, you've got these two life threatening types of pharmacotherapy, both uh, looking at the extremes of age. So, really important. So, when you're trying to frame difficult conversations with the patient, It's important for the patient to understand that the journey is theirs, right? So the journey in life is there. Your job is to keep them safe, to try and keep them and the community safe, and to help promote behaviors that are going to be good for their health, obviously. The reason why we need to taper patients is because the medication is not working. So this is where these opiate trials don't work, or the patients develop this life-threatening complication, which is addiction, And this happens with a lot of other therapies that we do as well when you think of blood pressure medication or anti-clotting drugs. So it's important that the patient knows that you've got their back. So you want to make sure that you're going to acknowledge that it will be difficult but not dangerous to their health to taper and that you care enough about them to set those boundaries and to help them taper off those medications. And we want to do it very slowly. And the other thing I always say to patients is make sure that you're reaching out to colleagues, especially because this is really hard work. It's very, very hard work. And we want to keep that trusting relationship with our patient. We don't want to cut them off. We want to make sure that we are actually working with the patient. Just want to kind of continue to look at the cases that we were talking about and how we would uh, approach each of these patients. So the first patient, so if I was doing that taper, and this was the patient that we initially talked about, who was Sandra, Uh, She's a 57-year-old female who was looking for a refill of her medication. She was on a very, very high dose of fentanyl patch. And I think we did talk about how we would taper that fentanyl patch in the previous podcast, but I'll just go over that again. So she was receiving a fentanyl patch of 250 mics, which is very high. It's about a 940 milligram morphine equivalent. So it is uh, nine times higher than the recommendation, but she's been on that for a long time. So you're going to go at it very slowly. So... Fentanyl patches can be super challenging to taper, but what you're going to do is take small bites out of that fentanyl patch. So we're just going to take 25 mics, which is equivalent to about 100 milligrams of morphine equivalent, but I'm going to drop it by that 30%. We were talking about that cross intolerance, which gives her 70 milligrams of cadian. And I'm going to decrease that 70 milligram of cadian by five to 10%. You can do it every third day, every week, until I get down to zero. And then I'm going to take another 25 mics do the same thing. I'm gonna help her manage the withdrawal symptoms and uh, I'm gonna make sure that uh, she's bringing those used patches back to the pharmacy and that uh, we're providing close oversight. So I'm gonna try and find the lowest dose possible in order to help see if we can improve her pain, but also to ensure that we're not increasing her risk of opiate sedation. The other thing that's important for these patients is make sure that you're giving them an naloxone kit and showing them how to use it. Now they can get them from the pharmacies now for free. The other case was an uh, inpatient round. Actually, I didn't discuss this case, but this was also a very interesting case that I remember many years ago. And it was a 31-year-old male who was an inpatient transfer from Halifax, and he was about five weeks post-surgery. He was receiving hydromorph 18 milligrams TID and hydromorph 4 milligrams sub and he was involved in a major motor vehicle collision and had a significant injury to his legs, but he was uh, five weeks post-surgery. So the nursing staff say that they find were finding these empty pill capsules in the garbage and they were hearing him sniff a lot. So how would I approach that situation is that I would sit down and have that conversation with him. What he was able to disclose to me is that he was struggling and that he was very much open to treatment. So we were able to do a methadone rotation and we're following him up in the uh, addiction clinic. So I'm I'm very fortunate to be able to do that rotation, but also to access the clinic. And uh, he did extremely well, actually, and has continued to do well. So sometimes it can be life-saving when we do the interventions. He was ready for treatment and he has done extremely well just to kind of summarize uh, the um, sort of the the last two podcasts that we were talking about is to remember that uh, what you do matters. It's important that we take back our power as power as prescribers. Never let a patient tell you how to prescribe these medications, but always work with patients to get them to the safest dose. But I think also really important to prevent the risk of opiate use disorder, but don't be afraid to use opiate analgesics. They can be very important in the right clinical situation, but they also can be quite dangerous if we don't appreciate the risks. It also is very helpful if you work in a group practice to pull together your group to have a common sort of policy and process for your group, especially if somebody's on holidays, how prescribing will happen around these high-risk medications, and using the same sort of outline for the patient so the patient knows what to expect with each of the prescribers. And don't be afraid to reach out if if the patient is really complicated. So our prime purpose in this life is to help others. And if you can't help them, at least don't hurt them. So this is the Dalai Lama. So we're going to end there. Hopefully you find this second half of the podcast helpful. And I just want to let everyone know that we've been doing this now for over a year, which is really surprising. I think I'm going to take a little break. We're going to try and see if we can look at this a little bit differently and uh, be able to bring in some interesting guests and uh, hopefully find some topics that are very, uh, are interesting, that help to stimulate the conversations that we need to have around this complex care. And just be sure that, uh, and feel confident in the fact that what the work that you do is very meaningful for patients and it really does matter. It's also really hard work but it's probably one of the most rewarding things that I do every day. So I'm going to close for now. Hopefully see you in probably a month's time. And uh, hopefully we'll have some new topics and interesting cases. Please feel free to put any suggestions on our information or inbox. It'd be great to hear from people if they have any other ideas of how we can do this. So we're going to sign off for now. So take care, everybody. Stay safe and we'll see you in a month. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.